welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. All right, well, we ready? Can I jump in? Sweet, dude. All right. <laughs> All right, well, good morning, Eastside. Man, we are in the season of Easter where we are exploring just the resurrection of Jesus, his victory over sin, death, and the grave. And what does that mean? How does that form us as a resurrection people? We're going to be in Acts 2 today, so if you have your Bible and you want to open and turn there, you feel free. Uh, Yes, because the proclamation of Easter is not just that Jesus rose from the grave and was alive 2,000 years ago, but it's that Jesus is alive, that he is alive and exalted and reigning today. So the reality is Jesus is exalted, he's alive as the life-giving Lord of the world, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, right? Right? Like, you're tired, you're working six days a week, and the kids are exhausting, and the national news cycle's got you down. (sighs) (laughs) And it can feel like all we've got is just kind of what's right in front of us, compressing and closing in. So the question for this morning is, how do we enter Jesus' resurrection life today? How do we enter that resurrection life today? Let's turn to Acts 2 and jump in. This is just after Christ has been raised from the dead, and this is the beginning of the church. And so Peter stands up, and he's standing up before this crowd, and he proclaims the gospel, and he says this. He says, Therefore, let all Israel, starting in verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All right, well, the first thing we see here is that God has raised Jesus as the life-giving Lord of the world. That God has raised Jesus as the life-giving Lord of the world. Like, what is it that Christ is Lord of? He's Lord of the world. Because everybody in the day knew that Caesar is Lord, right? Like that, that was a, a slogan that they would say. That was a proclamation that people would say, hey, Caesar is Lord. And it was this way of saying that Caesar is top dog, right? Like there are many authorities, there are many principalities and powers. There's your boss and there's people with different levels of influence. But at the top of the food chain is Caesar. Caesar is Lord of the world. So when Peter kind of steps up to the plate and proclaims Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, he's saying there's a new top dog in town, right? Like Jesus has been exalted over Caesar. He is over every principality, over every power, every authority. Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. He has been exalted as king of the earth. And this would have sounded shocking back in the day. You can imagine this would be uh, like, kind of like, man, if you can imagine like you were, you know, just kind of going, who is this itinerant rabbi? You're saying this peasant out on the outskirts of the empire in Podunk, Israel, he has been exalted as Lord of the world. 
It would kind of be like being at work. Let's say you work for this kind of international, uh, you know, multi-million dollar corporation. And someone comes up to you and is like, hey, you know Jeff? Yeah, like, Jeff down in the mailroom in the basement sorting the mail. Oh, yeah, I have seen Jeff. He brings my mail sometimes. You know, yeah, Jeff, he got installed as the new CEO. Right? And you'd be kind of going like, you mean like manager here? No, like, no, CEO of the whole thing. Jeff? Right? And it would have carried that sense back then. Like, Jesus? Like, I tend to, yeah, Jesus has been exalted from the crucified, kind of the basement of the grave, down in the mailroom. He has been exalted over Caesar by God. God has made him the life-giving Lord of the world. Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, I think today we often kind of restrict it. We have this kind of smaller view that, that Jesus is Lord of my heart. He's Lord of the church. And yes, these are true. But if we stop there... I think we have this danger of a kind of privatized spirituality, a sort of uh, the, the, the sense today of going, man, you can compartmentalize, you can believe whatever you want, like in your own heart and in your own home, just don't let it infiltrate the public life of the world. But the gospel confronts that and says, no, Jesus is Lord, not only of our heart, not only Lord of the church, God has made him king of the earth, Lord of the world. Jesus is the life-giving Lord of the world. Well, how did Jesus become Lord? Peter says God made him Lord, right? Like, we killed him, but God raised him. God has made Jesus Lord. And it's interesting to me, Peter doesn't say, hey, you need to make Jesus Lord, like you all need to make Jesus Lord. He says God has made Jesus Lord. And there's all the difference in the world between you need to make Jesus Lord and God has made Jesus Lord, right? Those are two very different starting points. So, for example, if you were to come to me and say, Hey, Josh, you need to make a house, right? Like, you need to build a house. And I think, okay, I, I don't really know how to build a house, but I guess, like, I, I'll get some hammer and wood and nails, and uh, I guess I got to dig a, a hole and try and make a foundation. And it was starting to induce anxiety, right? Because I don't really know how to build a house. And I'm like, okay, I guess I can take a shot at trying to make it happen. But now imagine if someone comes and says, hey, Josh, God has made you a house, and God's inviting you to enter in. Well, suddenly the anxiety slips away because it's no longer this thing that we got to go out and accomplish. It's this thing that God has done that he invites us to enter into. And similarly, the gospel does not say you need to go make Jesus Lord. The gospel says God has made Jesus Lord. And that can relieve the anxiety of God is building a new home in the world. He is establishing his kingdom on earth as in heaven through Christ. And the invitation for us is not to go build the kingdom, it's to enter the kingdom, right? Like we don't got to go out and make it happen. We get to bend the knee to Jesus to submit our lives to him as Lord. And as we do that, he's going to shape and form us as his resurrection people. And he's going to bring life into the world through us. But it starts with us, you know, that God isn't asking for our vote. He's asking for our submission, right? Like God isn't asking for your vote. He's asking for your submission because God has made Jesus king already. And we get to bend the knee and let his kingdom start to take root and shape and enter the world through us right? as his people. And this can relieve the anxiety because sometimes I think we treat Jesus as if like he's running for class president of our high school, right? Of David Douglas here. And so there can be this sense of like, man, we got to go uh, convince people to like Jesus. And so, hey, everyone, vote for Jesus because if you do, he's, he's going to bring back the vending machines. And he said, 
he'll get Justin Bieber to come to prom and perform, right? You know, like, come on, everyone, vote for Jesus. So, so we can feel like that with our, like, it can turn to this weird form of evangelism where we feel this pressure, this anxiety, like we got to go out and get people to like Jesus who don't, maybe don't really like him. Or we can feel like we got to go fix the world. There are all the, the social problems. we got to go fix it in order to, to make Jesus' kingdom happen. we got to build the kingdom. And while, yes, evangelism and yes, social work are good things, there's a different starting point that can relieve our anxiety of going, dude, God has made Jesus king, right? And he's not looking to us again for our vote. He's asking for our submission, that we get to bend the knee to Christ. And the starting point is letting him form us as his resurrection people for the world. Like, this is a great source of hope today, uh, because it can expand our collapsed horizons. Or it can expand our collapsed horizons. What I mean by that is this, that the reason that God's exalted Jesus is to bring life through him to the world. And we have our eyes set on that, on that horizon of God as king and his kingdom and Jesus as lordship. Uh, when you look out at a horizon, right, like you can see the horizon and you can also see everything within the horizon, right? Like everything between uh, that, the landscape, the buildings, the mountains, the city, whatever. Uh, But it's all framed within this bigger horizon. One of the challenges today is I think when we forget that Jesus is Lord and when we start to look down, when we lose that horizon, our, our vision becomes compressed and all we can see is right in front of us, right? And what can happen is we start to uh, we we start to load all that hope that tra- that desire for transcendence and meaning and significance into what's right in front of us. So we might do that with relationships, right? Like maybe you start to look at your spouse or your marriage or that that that, that romantic relationship, going, man, this is going to be the thing. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to bring meaning. It's going to save me. It's going to bring transcendence. This is what's going to fix my life. Only that person wasn't meant to carry all that weight. And so it can become uh, suffocating or crushing to them. And inevitably, those people are going to disappoint and let us down. And it no longer just becomes a bummer. It can, it can destroy us when we're looking for all that in them. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus invites us to lift our eyes, to look up, to lift our gaze. And the, the kingdom, Christ's lordship, expands our horizon. And yes, we can still see that person in that relationship, but they're suddenly freed up from having to carry all that weight. Or I think of just our national kind of news cycle and, and situation today, kind of political situation, where I've talked to so many lately who say they just feel hopeless. It just feels like this unending grind, like week in, week out. Uh, like, it's felt to me like this new national liturgy, right? This liturgical rhythm where every week there's the new crisis, the new crazy thing, the new, what's your response? What's your take? What's your, and, and, and feeling this pressure of like, man, the world just feels like it's going down and all I can see is this. And while yes, this, you know, we care about our country. This national conversation is important. But the gospel has the power to expand our collapsed horizons, right? And when we look up and see that Jesus is Lord, we can still see the stuff in front of us, but suddenly it doesn't define where, where we're headed, right? It doesn't define where our future is headed. And so we can endure, and we can, we can, we can continue to live faithfully, whatever level God's called us to in our community and doing the hard work locally here in the trenches without losing hope, right? We have a strength to endure because we've got a bigger expanded horizon that sees that Christ is the life-giving Lord of the world. 
God has raised Jesus as the life-giving Lord of the world. And I believe this morning he invites us to look up. Uh, to, to look up and lift our gaze. That's one of the reasons I love going for walks over the years, especially when times get hard or I'm, I have a difficult circumstance. Uh, it's not just because of the fresh air or the exercise or the movement, though those things are great too. But man, when you're out, getting out from under my roof and my ceiling, and there's this invitation, it feels like you just almost naturally want to look up and see the bigness of the sky almost as a reminder of God's transcendence, that Jesus is Lord. He is the life-giving King of creation. And we can submit and bend our knee to Him and let Him form us as His people with His hope today. All right, well, God has raised Jesus as this life-giving Lord, but what does this mean for us? How do we respond? Well, as we look up, the invitation is to choose life by turning from things that lead to death. To choose life by turning from things that lead to death. Peter tells the people when they're like, they're cut to the heart. As they look up and they see Jesus as Lord, it says they're cut to the heart. What should we do? And he tells them to repent and be baptized. Repent. Repent is this language for turning, turning from those things that lead to death. And what is it we need to turn from? Well, I like there's a Fleming Rutledge. She's a theologian, and she uses this uh, phrase. She distinguishes between what she calls sins versus sin, right? And here's what she means. She kind of goes, dude, we often, when we think of repentance and turning, we think of sins, right? Like our everyday actions. And this is true. So we think of things like, um, man, that snarky comment I made to my spouse, uh, that rolling stop, you know, I made at the traffic stop sign, or that, that maybe that line I skipped over on my taxes. And yes, those are real, uh, but we, if we stop there, we can miss the bigger picture. And in Scripture, we have not only kind of the capital, uh, the lowercase as sins, these everyday activities, but there's also this kind of bigger concept of capital S sin. The sense that our actions demonstrate a bigger posture that has unleashed evil in our world. That we as humanity, our desire to rule the earth apart from God, to rule our lives apart from God, to live on our own two feet, that capital S sin, it's more like this corruption or this decay that has infested the the masterpiece of God's good world, His creation. And so we have this capital S sin, the sense of this darkness, this evil, this, this, this corruption, this decay that's, on one hand, it's over us. Like, we, we live under its weight, right? Like you feel the power of, man, just rough things in our world. And yet it's also within us, right? Like, we've contributed to it. We've unleashed that reality. And so what we need to turn from is not just our sins, but sin itself, our posture set apart from God, our posture against Him, our rebellion against Him. I think we need to name those things uh, that not only that we've done, we need to name the trajectory of our heart. And why, why is that important? Why is turning necessary? Why is it that God wants not only for us to turn, but also to articulate and to name those things? Well, I think it's because of this, that Life-giving relationships, healthy life-giving relationships require truth. Healthy life-giving relationships require truth. Have you ever been hurt or deeply wounded by someone? 
and they deny that it ever happened. Right? Have you ever had some, maybe it was through gossip, maybe it was betrayal, maybe it was actual abuse. Right? And they deny, they don't, never acknowledge that it actually happened. I've talked to a lot of folks over the years as, 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 as they have had even like extreme things of abuse, and they would go back and say, man, the thing itself was horrible. But some would say almost more horrible was the fact that it was never acknowledged, that it was denied. Right? That the absence of truth, of a true acknowledgement of the situation, made it even worse. I, I think of this almost like a secondary injury, where... If you think of a secondary injury, it's, it's, let's say, for example, that you are in a, in a car accident, right? So you get in a car accident and you break your arm. And so you have that initial injury and it's bad. But then, let's say, instead of kind of setting the broken limb, you know, and, and, uh, and taking care of it and, and riding safely to the hospital, uh, let's say you see this a lot in uh, some parts of the world where people maybe are just thrown into the back of a taxi cab or a tuk-tuk, and so they're you know, riding along to the hospital, bouncing on this broken arm. And by the time you get to the hospital, the arm is in worse condition than when you left, right? Like before, it's like, okay, well, we could have said it. Now, it's like, dude, it has to be amputated or something, right? I think the denial of sin is similar, right? Like the sin itself can be bad. The stuff that we unleash can be bad. But the denial of it, it's like that secondary injury where it can make it even worse. Because healthy, life-giving relationship with God and with others requires truth to be in the center of the room. It requires that truth be acknowledged. We see this particularly in areas where there has been genocide or post-conflict war zones as societies are trying to heal and come back together and restore. One of the most significant things for social healing and restoration to take place is that the truth of the history is acknowledged. I think this is one of the reasons that uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa post-apartheid, why that work was so significant. Because uh, Bishop Tutu, is, he looked out and they, they founded this Truth and Reconciliation Commission saying, hey, our society has just uh, undergone extreme injustice. There has been extreme conflict. And how do we kind of heal the wounds and rebuild? And Tutu said, well, on the one side, uh, if we only go with grace, like kind of, hey, grace, everything's good. Let's just pretend it never happened, turn a blind eye. Grace without truth isn't really grace because it doesn't acknowledge what our country has endured. Because on the same hand, though, if we just go with truth without grace, if we just go, uh, hey, truth without grace isn't really truth, because that's not who God is, right? If we just go with truth, let's talk about all the hard stuff, um, but there's no opportunity for healing and restoration, that that's not going to help us move forward. Because grace without truth isn't really grace, and truth without grace isn't really truth. If we really want God's healing heartbeat for our country to be manifest, we need grace and truth together. And so what they did was the new government said, okay, here's the plan. Anyone, there's free amnesty, there is pardon for anyone willing to receive it. The only condition is you have to articulate, you have to publicly declare your crimes, what you've done. That was both for people who had been an authority of the old government, and that was also for the revolutionaries. There's a lot of gnarly stuff on both sides, right? And so there was this reality of, like God, going, hey, the posture is one of forgiveness for the kingdom. It's come in. But in order to enter that forgiveness, there needs to be an acknowledgement, a recognition of the truth. And 
that was seen as one of the uh, you know most powerful kind of uh, movements of actually bringing healing and reconciliation post-conflict in a country. I believe similarly in the gospel, God says, hey, my kingdom is for you. My posture is towards you. Jesus has been exalted as the life-giving Lord of the world and his embrace, his arms are wide open in a posture of embrace. But there's this reality of, man, you need to turn from those things that lead to death to turn to the Lord of life and choose him. Right? And we need to acknowledge the history, the ways that we have been set against him. So I think on our end, what we need to do is just own it. Right? This is a phrase I use with my, my kids when they uh, you know, lose it on their brother or sister and, and all. It's like, and, and usually they'll come up and try and make justifications or excuses. Like, well, yeah, but he did this first. Or yeah, but she, you know, just like, no, dude, just own it. Right? So there's something so powerful when we just own it. Just owning where we're at today. Just owning what we've done in our history. I found this in marriage. Maybe you found this too. That, like, man, there's something so powerful if we've had kind of a fight or conflict. If I were, if when I just say, I did this, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Right? I did this, I was wrong, I'm sorry. When you say that, it just disarms things, right? And usually then it kind of breaks down the barrier and the other person will come back and go, oh man, well, here's what I did too, right? I'm sorry. And that is a radically different thing from when I try and offer justifications or excuses, right? Like if you're married, it's a radically different thing if you go, hey, I did this, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Or in any relationship, when you do that, it's a very different thing if you do that versus when you go, hey, I'm sorry you felt this way that I kind of did this, but the reality is you kind of did this first, and I was having a bad week, my work's been hard. You know, like, those are two radically different things, right? And I think with Jesus... The gospel invites us to just own it. Yeah, there's grace. The arms of a life-giving Lord are wide open to receive us. And we're invited, there's freedom as a response to God's love in Christ to just own it, to name our histories, to name where we are today, to be able to call it out, to acknowledge the truth of it, and so that that grace can be experienced. Because grace and truth are like twin sisters, right? Like they are born from God's desire to heal the world. There is grace this morning. There is truth to bring life to us in the depths of our condition. All right, so we choose life and we turn from things that lead to death. And as we do that, as we repent, as we acknowledge, as we own our stuff, we let Jesus raise us into new life. We let Jesus raise us into new life. Here in Acts, the response it says 3,000 were baptized, right? Like the response is to repent and to be baptized. And baptism is this picture of being raised by Christ into his resurrection life. A baptism, it's, it's more than a symbol, it's a sacrament, right? Like it's more than just kind of, hey, it's kind of like this, it's actually a sacrament, it's a means of God's grace. It is this gracious provision in which God himself puts our old self to death as we go under the waters and he raises us to himself in Christ. The baptism is this reality of dying with Jesus and being raised in Jesus, being raised in the power of his resurrection, and I think it's powerful in baptism that 
you don't raise yourself, right? Like someone else pulls you up out of the water. So baptism is not like a push-up, right? Like it's not like you go down into the tank and like push yourself out, right? There's, there's meaning in the fact that, man, you are brought down and you're under the water and there's a sense of, man, if you don't pull me back up, I'm, I'm in trouble, right? And you're trusting that person to pull you up, to lift you, to raise you into breath and life for share again. I had a buddy once who was like, dude, I want to get baptized. It's like, man, I've seen Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his giving of himself, and it's touched me. I want to be baptized. Like, oh, it's great. It's like, I don't believe in the resurrection yet. And my buddy was like, all right, well, we can we can pull you down, but we can't bring you back up. The invitation is to let Jesus raise us into new life. And it's when you know and you trust that he, he is, that man, you can own your stuff, right? Because you know that He's for you and He's with you. And you can acknowledge the hard things as He's going to bring you back up. And so you know that He is, that we can face the toughest things this world has to throw at us. That diagnosis that isn't going away. That relationship that's falling apart. You just the stuff in our community that can seem, seem, seem hard and overwhelming. And we're invited to, to look up, to lift our gaze to Christ, the life-giving Lord, and we trust Him to raise us into new life through the power of His resurrection. Well, how does Jesus give us this life today? Uh, two things that we see here. One is He gives us His life through His Holy Spirit. He's received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us not just an idea about himself, not just a thought to carry us through. It's not like a Hallmark card or some kind of inspirational poster, right? Like Jesus gives us his very presence. Like Jesus gives us the gift of himself. And so the reality is where Jesus gives us himself, that the Holy Spirit, his divine presence dwelling inside us, the creator of the universe, making his home within us sparking our affections, fanning our flames of desire for Christ, our life-giving Lord. He gives us His resurrecting presence within. Even as our body may be wasting away and our life around falling apart, He gives us His life-giving resurrection power and presence within us. The second thing that He gives us is community. We read here that 3,000 people were baptized, right? Like, this is the world's first megachurch <laughs> overnight, right? Like, and they didn't have, you know, if you think our church is messy, <laughs> there were no websites, no bulletins. There was no, hey, here's how you get plugged in. Like overnight, kind of 3,000 people, and they had to figure it out, right? And church can be messy, but there's a sense that if you're united with Jesus, Jesus brings you not just into union with himself, but with his people. Like he raises us baptism into union with the body of Christ. Baptism was historically seen as entrance, not only life with Jesus, it was entrance into the church. It was a boundary marker where now we have entered into the life-giving community amongst Jesus' people. And as He's given us His Holy Spirit, man, it's a gift that's meant to be given away. It's a gift that's meant to be given 
And I, I don't know if you remember National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation years ago, but there's like, he's, he's hoping for uh, Clark Griswold. He's hoping for, you know, this kind of Christmas bonus, and it's going to make all his dreams come true. And he gets like this uh, Jelly of the Month Club, right? And he's like so disappointed. And, but his cousin on the side is like, Dude, it's, it's the gift that keeps giving all year round. <laughs> well, Jesus is much better than a Jelly of the Month Club, Carter, right? It's the very gift of the divine presence for us and within us. But it's a gift that's meant to be given. There's plenty to go around. Jesus has given us His life to share it. And so this morning there are some of you who I believe God wants to share His life with you through some of the people in this room. God wants to pour the life of Jesus into you through others. And there are some of you that God wants to use to pour the life of Jesus through you into others. Like we need one another. Jesus wants to form us as a community of the resurrected King. And sometimes I, I think, man, we can almost be better at uh, caring for our neighbor and our community, but man, sometimes we're not as good at just loving each other, right? Of being there for one another. And Jesus wants to actually form us as his resurrection people. Let us raise each other into new life together as we experience the power of His resurrection in us and through us with one another. So, man, if you're going, man, you might be this morning going, dude, I need to get connected and plugged in. Um, dude, I'd encourage you, like, there's pick up one of these community life booklets out at the welcome table, and that's a chance to actually go, man, there's a ton of opportunities. Just go, how, how can I get connected and do life with others? where Jesus can shape and pour into us through, through others, and we can pour into each other the life of Jesus. All right, well, what does all this mean for us today? One of my questions for us would be, where do you need resurrection life this morning? What circumstance are you in? What condition where Jesus is inviting you to look up to raise your eyes. Again, it could, be, it could be that hole in your heart right, from the person who walked away. It could be that diagnosis that just isn't going away. It could be that weekly news feed that just feels so overwhelming. Jesus is inviting us this morning to look up, to lift our gaze, to let Him expand our horizons, to see Him is the life-giving Lord of the world and to set our hope and our confidence and our trust in Him, to cry out to Him. It's the invitation is that Jesus wants to expand your horizons. He's bigger than anything this world can throw. The resurrection reveals that the worst this world's got to throw, sin, death, and the grave cannot keep Him down. And because of Him, it means it can't keep us down either. Another question, the next one would be, are there things that lead to death that Jesus is calling you to turn from? Are there areas that Jesus is inviting you to choose life? Maybe it's the lowercase s sins, that harsh word you said to your spouse, that, uh, man, that person at school that you've been ignoring, trying to avoid. Maybe it's something you need to just own with another person. 
Or maybe it runs deeper and you're going, man, it's, there's that capital S and there's that posture against God that I've been hardening, I've, harboring. I've allowed my heart to get hardened against God in this way, that we're invited to own that this morning. There will be people here at the prayer doors who would love to pray with you and to, to be able to just own that, to articulate that truth together before God and experiencing that grace and healing. And maybe some of you, maybe you've been baptized, uh, but it's just like, man, I need to get plunged deeper. Like there's more that needs to die and there's more life that God wants to raise me into. I need to plunge deeper into life with Jesus and His Spirit. Or maybe there's some of you that are going, dude, I've actually never been baptized and, and I actually, I, I want to turn from that posture. I actually want to, man, let Jesus raise me into the fullness of life. I want to enter into the, the community of the historic and global church and allow Jesus to pour me through His people. Well, if that's you, then come talk to me after. I'd love to connect and, and, and dive into that together. But as we come to the communion table this morning, to the body, this bread broken, Christ's body, this wine of his blood shed, the beauty is that Jesus wants to give you the gift of himself. Jesus wants to give us the gift of himself. But God has raised him as the life-giving Lord of the world. And God wants to pour his life through Jesus into us as his people. So let's come to the table and let's receive the life of Christ, our resurrected King. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we look up this morning, we lift our gaze. And we rejoice and we celebrate the fact that God, you have raised Christ is the life-giving Lord of the world. God, we pray that you would expand our collapsed horizons. Any of those areas where uh, we, we've just kind of become so focused and fixated on what's right in front of us, we can't see the bigger picture of your resurrection power for us and for our world, God. We pray that you would expand our vision, God. That we'd still be able to see the stuff in front of us, but it would no longer be all that we see. It would be framed within the broader, expansive vision of your redemptive power in Jesus, the Lord of the world. And Jesus, I pray if there are any things that we need to turn from this morning, that we need to, that things that lead to death, God, I pray that this morning we would choose life. That we would choose life and we would be able to just own it, to acknowledge, God, if that's with other people, things we need to just own, and ultimately, God, if that's with you, God, that if there's anything that we need to just own this morning, that we could enter the power of your grace, God, that's there for us by acknowledging the truth of who we are and what we've done, God. That your grace and your truth are, again, are they... God, we rejoice that they come for us, God, within the broader context of your desire to heal your world. So we want to own it, and we want to receive the glory and beauty of your grace. And God, we want to let you raise us into new life, Jesus. You aren't going to leave us under those waters, God. You're going to yank us out with all of your mighty resurrection power and strength, God. So this morning we bring to you whatever we've got, the worst we've got to bring, knowing that you've faced it on our behalf and that you are powerful to raise us into life with you forever. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. 
If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.